Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Welcome to lesson number nine in the Gospel of John. Today's session, we'll be looking at the Upper Room Discourse in John chapter 13. This is Christ's last time with his disciples prior to his crucifixion and resurrection. Today we'll be looking at the first part of John chapter 13 in which Christ washes washes the feet of the disciples and where we have the account of Judas leaving the group to go off and betray Christ. So join us today as we begin our study. Yeah, let's open in prayer. Father, thanks so much for tonight. Pray that you would teach us now as we study John 13, a great chapter. Open our hearts to what it says. Father, thank you for this word that we have before us. Thank you for your Savior, for your Son who redeemed us and for the Holy Spirit who guides us and teaches us and helps us to understand. And I pray that we would more than understand, Father, but would actually do what your word has to say to us. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I just thought it would be fun to put this little thing on the board because um, what we actually are going to look at as we look as we finish up John chapter 13 here and and what we talked about last week is uh, two of these aspects come into play um, in John chapter 12 through 13. What two do you think come into play? That's one of them. That's one of them. What's the other one? Chapters 12 through 20, two of these come into play. One of them is abandonment. Nope. Huh? No. Redemptive. All right. Yeah. Okay, so... All of you who wrote down wrath get two points. Wrath. <laughs> All who wrote down wrath get two points. All right. Not nah, wrath. All right. All wrote down wrath. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody get it? Anybody get that? I thought somebody would get it. Yeah, I thought, all right. Well, when we talk about this, and, and, and the reason I bring this up here is um, because we often don't talk about this, this word of wrath. We don't think of it as, as um, something to even really, uh, I don't want to put it. It's one of those words you just don't hear talked about in churches. You hear love of God, right? Everybody talks about the love of God, you know. Um, you know, you, you listen to these guys on TV and, you know, God's just dripping and oozing with love and it, it, to the point that, that you know, it, it, it doesn't matter what you do because God loves you so much, it really doesn't matter how you live. Um, and, and they want to emphasize the love, love, love component of God. And often when you ask people, um, quick, tell me, what's the number one attribute of God in the Bible? They talk about what? The love of God. You know, that's not the most, the number one. What is the number one attribute? Holiness. Holiness. Holiness, holiness is, is, is far and above um, the number one attribute of God in the Bible. And what does holy mean? He's not like us. Um, he's separate from us. No matter what you think God to be, he's above and beyond that. Um, God is utterly unlike us, um, not only in terms of sin, but in terms of his nature, in terms of his being. In fact, God is utterly separate from the creation, right? If you track creation, you've got God. He's the only thing that exists outside the boundaries of all that he has created. He's the only uncreated being. Um, so we talk about the love of God, you know, we might hit the holiness of God and mercy and grace and all that, but nobody talks about wrath. And yet, what you're going to see in John 13 through 20 is God's redemptive wrath poured out on Christ. 
And what you see, and I, I call it redemptive. That's the word I, I came up with. But it, it's God's wrath poured out at the cross. And then in chapter 12, what do you see? You see the wrath of abandonment. In what sense? What do you think the wrath of abandonment is? When we talk about that. God turns them over, right? God turns them over. That's Romans 1. Romans 1 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We're there. It's, it's an interesting word. It means to suppress. What do you, when you think of suppress, what do you think of? Hide. To hide, to hold down, to, 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 to try to hide it. And what, what Paul is saying there is that man's desire to, you know, with God is to suppress the truth. They don't want to know the truth. They want to hide it. They want to suppress it. They don't want to talk about it. They want to ignore it. And what Paul is talking about there in Romans 1, actually, is the temporal wrath and the wrath of abandonment. What's the temporal wrath of God? God's wrath is being revealed. That The word there is in continuous action. His wrath is being revealed. What is the wrath of God? When we talk about wrath of God, what is it? We think of punishment, right? It's like uh, against uh, God's response to unrighteousness. That's it. That's what he called it. Yeah, that's it. God's wrath is a is an attribute of God. When we think of wrath, what do we think of? An emotion, right? An emotional response. The wrath of God is beyond an emotional response. The wrath of God is one of his innate characteristics. When we talk about God is love, God is just, God is holy, God is wrath. And wrath, the wrath of God is his automatic response to sin. God does not have to think up and, and work himself up into an emotional frenzy when it comes to sin. It's an automatic response. When you have sin in his presence, God's wrath is revealed against that sin. It's part of his nature. That's the attributive wrath of God. It's an attribute of his character of who he is. And we like to talk about God being love, and he certainly is. But God is a God of wrath as well. And both are in view in the scriptures. You can't have one without the other. They're both there. And in Romans 1, Paul talks about the temporal wrath of God. How is God's wrath revealed? Well, look around you. What happens in this world? Disasters, right? Floods, accidents, diseases. That's part of God's outworking wrath against sin. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Part of God's response is his wrath. Now, luckily for us, that wrath is tempered by his mercy and patience, right? Or else God would wipe out all of humanity at the very beginning, and there wouldn't be anything, right? And the starting point of understanding God is to realize that none of us in here deserve anything. We don't deserve the next breath we take. And the first sin we do, we deserve to be wiped out immediately. And it's God's patience and mercy that tempers his temporal wrath. But God has a temporal wrath. When you see disasters and hurricanes and floods, you know, there's a lot of people, it's interesting, after every natural disaster, Katrina, you get a bunch of the, you know, the talking heads on TV. They're trying to figure out, well, where was God when Katrina hit? You know? And you got these idiots that say, well, God is judging New Orleans for their sin and blah, 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 you know? And, and they're wanting to make out God to be this, you know, arbitrarily Bad. I, I can think of worse. I can think of other places to wipe out than New Orleans, right? Like Hollywood or Las Vegas. You know, I'd start there, or Oberlin. You know, work outward. You know, um, but you know, you got people on talking about. You know, well, you know, God's trying to judge this this New Orleans. Well, you know, how do you know that? Do they know that? Well, 9-11 was God's judgment on the on America for abortion and homosexuals, right? That's Pat and Jerry. That's not Ben and Jerry's ice cream. It's Pat and Jerry's theology. Um, look, folks, you, 
Here, here's what the Bible says. God's wrath is poured out and being poured out temporally in disasters, but we don't know what God's purpose is, right? We live in a fallen universe. What's the, the thing about a fallen universe is it's broken, right? You have hurricanes, you have floods, you have natural disasters. That's part of our fallen, the fallen creation we're in. And we're all going to be subject, subject to these because we live in a world that's, that's, that's condemned under sin. The creation is groaning, Paul says in Romans 8, in pain under, under the, the judgment of God. So there's a temporal judgment of God. There's a temporal wrath that is, that is seen in diseases. Uh, AIDS is part of God's temporal wrath against sin. All right. Um, disease, death is part of God's temporal wrath against sin. We all are, are going to die someday. All right. So that's God's redemptive wrath. His attributive wrath is his automatic response to sin in his presence. Um, that's why you, may, you can't see God and live because God has an automatic response to sin. And, and he doesn't have to think it up. It's automatic. It's part of who he is. It's one of his essential nature. It's part of his essential nature, one of his essential attributes. But then you see the wrath of abandonment. That's a wrath that we see in John 12. What did Christ say? Having eyes they do not see, having ears they don't hear. There comes a point when God abandons a nation or God abandons a person. You say no, 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 if often enough, God will say fine. Uh, Romans 8 talks about that. It says because they did not retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. What's a reprobate mind? It's a mind that can't think. That's what you see on these nut jobs on TV, like Phil Donahue and all of that. They can't think. They're they're they have a reprobate mind. It doesn't mean that they're stupid people, but when it comes to the moral realm, they can't think right because their minds have been corrupted. They've been given over to this thinking. And and, and the idea of giving over, that's a very interesting word. Paradidomy, it's a Greek word, it's a fascinating Greek word. It means to bind over to the, to the jailer. It, it, it's, it's a word used if you've been convicted of a crime, the judge turns you over to the bailiff or whatever. It means to be turned over for imprisonment or execution. God is saying, I'm turning you over to your sin. I'm gonna let, I'm gonna let it have mastery over you. And we see people who are given over to sin, right? I mean, they can't, it's like they're stuck in it and they can't get away from it, you know, and that's part of God's wrath. If you refuse God long enough, God will abandon you to your sin. Um, and if in the Old Testament, God says of Ephraim, he's joined to his idols, leave him alone. What does it mean? Ephraim was the northernmost tribe of Israel way up in the north. And they had become so idolatrous that God finally said, don't bother them. I've abandoned them to their idolatry. And God will, and what happens here in John 12 is God in his wrath abandons Israel to their rebellion. They've rejected the Messiah, rejected the Messiah, and finally God says, fine, I won't bother you. In Christ, what you see him doing in John chapter 13 is having been rejected by the nation, he now turns to his disciples who have received him. Christ no longer talks to the nation. And it's interesting, when Christ was resurrected, you know, you know, think about, in a non-blasphemous way, think about what would happen if you were unjustly condemned and crucified and somehow you came back to life. Who's the first person you'd look up? The high priest. I'm back. You know, um, that's who I, you know, Christ never appeared to them. <clears throat> He never showed up to the high priest. I mean, it really freaked Pilate out had he showed up, right? What about Herod? You know what I've always wanted? He never showed up to them. You know, when he was resurrected and the dead saints came up to and went into the city and witnessed about him, I was always, I've always been wondering, who did they go talk to? Yeah. Because surely, as much as the Jewish leaders, they had their hands on everything in Jerusalem. They knew what was going on in every aspect of that city life. 
I don't believe, I don't think a stranger walked in that town without them guys knowing it. Because it was their town. Yeah. Everything revolved around, it, it was their whole life, their livelihood. And then these guys went into the city, these people that was resurrected with Christ. I'm talking, you know, it blows my mind thinking about it. I'd like to see some DVD replays when I get to heaven, you know. That, that's going to see what happens. They you know, had to go, some, they had to have known that somehow. But see, but see, what we what we need to understand is when God abandons someone and turns them over, they can't see it. Even if it's in front of their face, they can't see it. God gives them over to it. God, you know, if you reject the truth for so long, and God abandons you, you can't know the truth. Even if it's staring you right in the face, you don't see it. And that that's the thing. What the Pharisees, they had the Messiah right in front of them. And they could not see it. And they could not see it because God had abandoned them to their rebellion. He abandoned them. He said, okay, fine. And when Christ says, you're going to die in your sins and where I'm going, you cannot come. That was not only prescriptive, it was predictive. You're, you're going to, you guys are not, you're going to die in your sins. You guys might live another 20, 30, 40 years, but your hope of redemption is gone because you've refused to believe. You've turned your back. You've walked the other way. I'm going to give you over to your sin. I'm going to abandon you to your sin. And what we see in our society today is we see people who are abandoned to their sin. You know, you look at some of the behaviors of people out there. And you ask, how can they do that? How can they live like that? They've been abandoned by God. They're to be pitied. And Christ abandons the nation, in a sense, in John 12. You can't see. You won't accept me. So this is what Isaiah talked about. Stop up their ears, close their eyes, and don't let them see. Why? Because they won't. See? And then, of course, we have the eternal wrath. What's that? That's like a fire, isn't it? That's the lake of fire. The lake of fire is needed because it shows God's holy wrath against evil. For all of eternity, there's an example of God's character of wrath and justice. Why do people go to hell? Because they deserve to go there. They've earned it, right? The wages of sin is death. God's paying them off. And that, you know, that again, that's a paradoxical thing in the scriptures. You talk about election, God chose us to be saved, but if you go to hell, it's not because God elected you to hell, it's because you refused to believe. The Bible always puts the onus on you. And you can't put those together, just take them for what they are. What did Christ tell Jerusalem? You wouldn't believe. I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, and you wouldn't believe. You you refused to listen. And what about uh, Ezekiel? You know, God's telling Ezekiel, I want you to go preach, but, you know, they're rebellious people. They're not going to listen to you. They're stuff-necked. They're hard-hearted. They're not going to listen to a word you say, but at least they'll know there's a prophet among them. I was like, that is a calling the ministry. Go preach to the nation, and nobody's going to believe you. You're going to have zero converts. But at least they'll know there's a prophet there. And then, of course, you've got Christ, uh, the wrath of God poured out on the cross, right? Who got that? Christ. We got to understand, God's wrath was poured out on Christ at the cross. God's wrath against sin. Why is that? Because he became sin who... Knew no sin. Now, don't don't go down the route that you hear on TV with the Kenneth Copeland and Haggins and crowd that want to say Jesus, in essence, became sin. All right, he did not. Jesus, in his essence, did not become sin any more than the scapegoat, in essence, became evil. Remember, on the Day of Atonement, when the priest laid his hands on the scapegoat, did the scapegoat become an evil goat? No. But the scapegoat was, in a, in a sense, the sins of Israel was 
placed on that scapegoat and was taken out into the wilderness never to come back. It wasn't that it became evil. Christ did not become evil. How do you know that? How do you know he didn't become evil? He's God. God cannot become evil, right? That's impossible. Can't happen. So Christ did, in essence, did not become evil, nor, as they tell you, did Christ go and get and suffer the fires of hell for us. Christ never suffered in the fires of hell. He went down to proclaim his victory, but he did not suffer in the fires of hell. Christ's suffering was finished. He went down there and proclaimed his victory. He did not go down there as an internee. Yeah. He didn't go down there as an internee. <laughs> no. All right. It, it, he might have he visited the prison to say, I won, but he didn't go there as an inmate. All right. And, and, you know, a lot of these guys say, well, yeah, Christ went to hell and he was in the chains and, and all of that. And, and, and Satan tortured him. Uh, understand, in spite of what you see on TV, Satan is not the warden of hell. You realize that? Yes, he's an inmate. Who's the warden? God's the warden. Satan is not near hell right now. <laughs> and someday Satan is not going to be the one in charge of the eternal lake of fire. No, he's going to be an inmate. Satan doesn't run hell. Satan doesn't torment people in hell. There are no demons down there tormenting people. That's not what hell is about. Hell is a place of abandonment by God. A place of eternal abandonment. You didn't want me? Fine. I'll abandon you and leave you to yourself. And God's wrath is poured out in eternity on those who reject him. And what we're going to see in John here, John 12, in John 12 we saw the wrath of abandonment, but now we're going to see, as, as we work through 13 through 20, the wrath of God poured out on the cross, on Christ. John 13. It's the wrath of God that's going to be poured out on his son. All right. And by the way, this is a real wrath. This is not. God did not go easy on Christ. All right. And, and, and the, the, the horror of the cross was not the nails in the hands. That's bad. Because we, we're physical beings. We think of the physical torture and all. And that was bad. But that's not what horrified Christ. What horrified Christ, and see, we'll never understand this. When you go to bed at night, try to ponder this. In all of eternity, and we're not talking about eternity here out, we're talking about here out and here back. <laughs> there was never an instant in all of eternity that Christ and the Father were not in intimate contact with one another, except for those three hours on the cross. In those three hours, God turned his back on Christ. And we won't understand the horror of that. Even in heaven, you know, when, when, when we've been there for a few billion years or whatever, we may get to the point where we understand it a little bit of what it would be like to be abandoned by God. But Christ and the Father were in perfect total harmonious relationship for all of eternity and for three hours that was broken and the horror and the anguish of that between two eternal beings translates into an eternal thing for us. Nobody inflicts punishment in hell? God no. God is... Passive, passive punishment, forever abandoned, forever in the, in the yeah. fire. Yep. Where your body is made to be forever burned. Yes. To suffer whatever torment is there. There's nobody, you're not having demons tormenting you in hell. There's no demons there with pitchforks turning you on a spit and, you know, all of the like, little popular things we see in the comic books and the TV. And, you know, when Yosemite Sam goes to hell, you know, and he's trying to get Bugs Bunny to go down. You know, we, we have all these little car caricature type pictures. That's not what hell is about. Hell is abandonment by God. And if anything, the Bible says you're there alone. You're not partying in hell. You're not having a big party down there. 
you're you're by yourself. So go ahead. Um, do we have some level of intimacy with God now, where that abandonment will really have you know some some effect on us? What do you mean? I mean, I mean, will it be different than now? Are we separated from God now? And if if someone goes to um, hell, will we be separated from God then? Or do we have some level of understanding or connection to God that will be, uh, you know, will be a reason for you know great sorrow in hell to be separated, like Christ was separated? I think what you will feel in hell, you know, and and again. The Bible only approximates because our brains can't comprehend the horror of it. Um, it it's, it's the physical torment that's going to be very real. How do you know that? Well, the rich man says, I am tormented in this flame. Now, is that real fire like we know fire? Um, I don't know whether it's fire like we know fire, but whatever it felt like to him, it certainly felt like fire. That was the, that was the, the feeling that he had. Um, there was the pain, but there's also the abandonment and the hopelessness. You never it's never gonna end. It doesn't stop. There's there's no way out. And and you can cry all you want to God and there's no, no one to answer. God's not gonna hear you. And there's going to be the memories of all that you could have had and didn't have. And your conscience is going to be screaming at you saying, you deserve this. You wanted it. You got it. <laughs> you deserve this. Well, I think, um, I don't know, maybe I heard your question differently. Um, I think the believers have a relationship with God that will not be separate, will not be severed. But unbelievers, like those of the Pharisees and the people that rejected Christ, they have a, uh, they're in a position of, of being abandoned by God on earth, but that future abandonment of hell and, and, and the eternal torment is something yet to come for them. But there is an abandonment that occurs here where they're allowed to just be sinful and not repent and not feel bad. I mean, maybe feel bad about it, but not ever come to a place where they agree with God that they're sinners and they need Him. So that's, I don't know. I mean, why do you feel bad when you sin? What's the right answer to that? There's a right answer and a wrong answer. Because you violated your relationship with God. That's the right answer. The wrong answer is, God will punish me. God will hit me. God will do something bad to get after me. You know, that's not the right answer. The right answer is you violated a relationship. You love God so much that it pains you to do something to hurt God. You don't want to do that. You know, because you love him so much. All right. And think what it would be like if he turned his back on you. You loved him so much, and he turned his back on you. That, that's how Christ felt to, to, to an infinitely greater degree. Because for three hours, God turned his back on his son. As he took upon himself our sin and bore it on the cross. And Christ, you got to understand something. Christ is is infinitely pure. Think of someone who is infinitely pure taking on um, the guilt of a rape, of a murder. Of killing 50 million people like Miles Tung did. Think, think of the horror of taking on you the, the sin of Hitler, the guilt of what he did. We don't understand the horror of that. That's, that was the horror of the cross. That's, that's what terrified Christ. It was not the physical pain. The physical is nothing compared to the horror of having God the Father turn his back on him. Why, why would hell even exist when you, after the eternal state, when 
back to the millennium and, and God has permanently establishes his kingdom yeah. on earth. And God has abandoned the people of hell. He's turned them, he's forgotten them and abandoned them. What purpose is served beyond that? Why don't they just cease to exist? Because they are forever an example to the holy angels of God's wrath against sin. And again, why did God create creation? To display his character. So how do you know what God is like? God had to allow evil to display his attributes of wrath, justice, mercy, kindness, love, forgiveness. Can I ask a question? You know, we're made in God's image. So there's a part of us that when he made us, when he breathed into us the breath of life, that we will exist forever. And if we exist forever, there has to be a place for us to exist. Mm -hmm. So you have the elect and the not elect. I mm -hmm. that phrase. Those that are elect, He's learning. He's learning. All right. He's come a long way. <laughs> when he got when he when he created this world and man, and of course, you know, he knew before we were gonna fall. He had to create a place for them. Just as he created, as Jesus said, he went away to create a place for us. That where he is, we may be also. That's the positive part of salvation. That's the that's the blessing side of God. And then the wrath side of God is those that have been given this eternal existence. They have to have a place to exist apart from God. Mm -hmm. And that's him. It's abandonment. And why why do I believe in eternal hell? Because the Bible says it's eternal. You can't can't get around it. There's people that talk about annihilationism. You know, they go down there, they suffer a while, and then poof, they're gone. Look, the Bible doesn't teach that. It teaches that there is an eternal place. And it says they're going to be tormented in the presence of the Lord and of his only angels. And the smoke of their torment will ascend up forever and ever. Revelation 14. I don't think we will observe that. I don't think in heaven we will observe the torment of those in the lake of fire. But Christ... God certainly will, the holy angels certainly will, and it will be an example to them of God's wrath against sin. It's part of who he is. And those who go to hell do not want heaven. Understand, they're there because of their rejection. It was an act of decision on their part that put them there. They did not want God. They did not want to know about God. The abyss is, is in a temporary place, I think, where the demons are at. The abyss is to a demon what Hades is to a human being. When you die, apart from Christ, you go to Hades. That's a temporary place. The abyss is a place where the demons go and are bound. And then, at the eternal state, there's just one place, the lake of fire, where all of the unredeemed... The fallen angels, humanity, all of them are there in the lake of fire. Now, some of the fallen angels were placed in the abyss. Temporarily. The yeah, past, right. But others are still out and working. About. And, if, and, you know, from what I can glean from the scriptures, those that, that um, go outside the boundaries that God allows them to go are in danger of being sent to the abyss. I mean, remember the, the, the demons and pigs that went in pigs, the demons and a man, begged him not to send them to the abyss. All right, so they didn't want to go there, which seems to indicate that they could have gone there. Um, you know, God's not filled in all the details, you know, on that. But the lake of fire is a place where God eternally abandons those who reject. Yeah, Hades is the temporary place. Yeah, it's a temporary place. Because death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. All right. He went to the to the to the to the underworld and led, you know, captivity captive. Um, some have suggested that that is referring to the redeemed, who now have access to heaven after the cross. He didn't go to hate. He went to Hades to um, proclaim his victory over right. sin. Hell, right? No. Right. Only Hades. Mm -hmm. 
we, we have a lot of English words. You know, a lot of times Hades is in the Bible is is translated hell. In fact, that's sometimes that's that's what it's translated. There's another place called Gehenna, which is the the garbage dump, basically. Um, the Gehenna is the descriptive term. Hell is the proper term, or Hades. It's actually the proper term for it. Lake of fire exists, though. That is the eternal state. Hell is not eternal. The lake of fire is. Hell is temporary. Hell is part of this created universe, and someday it's going to go away. This universe is going to dissolve. And, and the lake of fire will be a place outside of the new heavens and earth where the lost and the unredeemed will be forever. When you think about all of that, and you know, God is omnipresent, so really, in essence, you can never go any place, anywhere, whether it be in this, this, this world or the afterworld, without God's presence. Right? So hell is really a, a place where God is too. But the only problem is in hell, that's where his wrath is continually poured out. Yeah, and and God's presence is veiled. You know, it's veiled. You know, you know. One good test on a theology exam is: is God more in heaven or more here? And the answer is no. He's as much here as he is in heaven. And then people say, well, why do you talk about heaven being the boat of God? Well, that's where you see his manifested presence there in heaven. But it's not that he's more there than he is here. That, that's, that's a bad theological thing to think of. No, he's not more there than here. There I see the glory. There I see his presence. There is the command center, so to speak, of the universe. But he's as much here as he is there. I just don't see him here. But... Right. And see, part of our eternal understanding will be that we do not deserve heaven. And it's God's grace and his grace alone that allows us to be there. And there will be an appreciation for God that transcends our thinking now. And that's why, you know, that's why God has excluded works from this whole deal, because he doesn't want anybody in heaven who thinks they deserve to be there. The whole point is, no, you don't deserve to be there. That's the whole point. Because then you truly appreciate the majesty and the awesomeness and the wonder of redemption, realizing that you don't deserve it. And it's God's grace. And, and that, that makes his grace just that more brilliant. You know, it's like it's like when you, you know, you can take a diamond, you know, and hide it in a glass of water and things like that, and you don't see it. But take that diamond and put it on a black velvet cloth, and all of a sudden, the brilliance of it just comes out. And that's really what Paul's talking about in Ephesians, or not Ephesians 5, but Romans 5, where it talks about how, you know, God's grace is, is seen best in distinction to our sin. And we're going to appreciate what God has done, and we're going to love him for that and, and worship him for his greatness and goodness and love to us because we're going to understand we don't deserve to be there. Well, that's theology. Or since God is holy, he has to yeah. judge him. He has to. If he's not judging, he's not holy. Yeah. And quite honestly, the sinners would not want to be in heaven. They want to be in hell. They want to be there, but they wouldn't want, you know, and that's why God will not allow anything in that defile it. And, you know, the wonder about heaven is we, we, we won't be able to screw it up. You know, if it was left to us, we, you know, after a while, heaven would be empty, right? Yeah. And that's the wonder of it. I'm not going to be able to sin and rebel. That's what the Supreme last time we started chapter 5. You know, and, and honestly, folks, you know, that's that's the thing that I, I at night I lay and just wonder, just often thinking of why 
Why me? And I can't get over that. And the more I think about it, the more I'm obsessed with it. And the more, the more in awe I am of God and his mercy to me. And the more desirous I am to live a holy life to, because I love him. You know, I'm not, the fear of sin to me is not that God's going to judge me. The fear of sin is I'm going to violate a relationship, you know, with someone who, who loves me beyond my capacity to understand. And when I, when I sin, I hurt him. You know, that, that, that's what, that's been my meditation. What about, you know, I mean, from, from to be honest, but from a humanist perspective, isn't it, I mean, was it wrong for part of the reason that I believe is because I'm scared of hell? God may use a lot of reasons to believe. I mean, uh, yeah. You're honest. Yeah, God, God certainly can. And, and again, you know, God uses all kinds of ways to bring people to himself. And one of those ways is fear. <laughs> you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But what happens is once, when you're redeemed, whatever means God uses to draw you to himself, as you grow and mature, that you should, you should become more and more aware of God's love for you and, 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 the, and that relationship. It's, it's a relationship. And, and your desire should be to, to love him and to do those things that please him. And not to use a list of, I'm not allowed to do this or this or this, but to just love him. That, that, that's really the end. I mean, that's love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love thy neighbor as thyself. That fulfills the commandments. I mean, if you truly do that, you're not going to kill people. And you're not going to steal from them. You're not going to lie about them. You're going to spend time with God. You're not going to have any graven images. You're not going to make him into being something he's not. I mean, that's the end of the law. And, and, and I'm just, I'm in awe of that. I can't, I can't fathom that. And the more I try to fathom it, the less, <laughs> the less I think I get it. And it's just, all I can do is just say thank you. Anyways, we better get into John 13. That is the wrath that God poured out on, on the cross. God poured out his wrath on Christ. And because Christ took my wrath, I don't have to Suffer the wrath of God. And, and, and you know, that, that goes back to, you know, the core, I think, the core of the gospel message. And I've said this before many times. The word that really, if you want one word that, that really talks about um, the whole concept of redemption and salvation, to me the best word is Substitution. Christ took my place. He took my wrath. He took my punishment. He took my sin. He paid my penalty so that I can be forgiven. It's a substitution. He took my place. And, and, and everything else revolves around that. And, and that's why we call, talk about the substitutionary atonement. Which isn't essential. Christ took my place. He didn't kick start me and then it's up to me to finish the job. He took all of the wrath that God, put it this way, all the wrath that you would suffer in an eternity in the lake of fire, Christ took them on himself. Now go figure that one out. Don't you think too when you look at Calvary you realize that Christ took your place? It actually makes you more humble. Because you realize 
There is nothing in the Christian life that is based on pride, except sin. You're not saved because God liked you better than the guy next to you, or because you're a nicer guy, or you have a greater personality, or whatever. That's has nothing to do with any of that. It's not because you earned it, because you, you worked for it. None of that. God wants to crush your pride. And when you hear a message of the gospel or a message on TV that caters to pride, to self-esteem, to your worth, it's off to start out with. I mean, it's odd killer to start out. It's, it's, it's based on the wrong thing. You are a worm. Oh, you know, don't tell people that. They'll feel bad. They're supposed to. How can you be saved if you don't see yourself as a sinner? Last night, my wife and I went and put our cats to sleep for 17 years. And, you know, during that process and watching the cat over the last week or so and seeing this disintegrate from the lively cat that he used to be to mm -hmm. this invalid animal, and then finally getting to the point where we felt it was better to put him to sleep. So, so suffering and all that would be over. Um, during the process yesterday afternoon of dealing with this, I was just really reminded that, you know, that death is a part of this fallen world. And that everybody, no matter what accomplishments they have or how good or bad they live, they have to come to that moment. And when that moment comes, if you don't have Christ, man, that is the scariest moment of all. We all have a divine appointment. God not only, you know, see the thing in the eternity past, God only elected you. He not only chose you, but God determined the day and the moment of your birth. And the day and the moment of your death. It's all written down, folks. And we all have an appointment that we're not going to, we're not going to miss. And we need to be ready at that time. Great memory verse, uh, Hebrews 9.27. This is man who does something die once and takes judgment. Yeah. I think about it often. <laughs> you get one shot. Those who are done, all who took the last secret journey. And, you know, and we don't want, we, we have sanitized death so much in our modern culture. Hmm. You know, people die in hospitals. They used to die at home with the kids. You know, and you have to explain to your kids when they're carrying your grandma or grandpa out to bury them what happened, and they got to see that we we sanitize it. We don't like to talk about it. We, you know, we we don't like to face it. And you know what? There's coming a day for all of us. Got to be ready. And I don't want to be abandoned by God. You know, to step off into a Christless eternity. To be abandoned by God is it's 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 frightening to think about. Well, ever since I about fifteen years ago, I wonder how many times you know, you go to I mean, everyone's in heaven, you know. <laughs> I mean, the sermon pretty much puts them there, <laughs> and I often think about that, you know. <laughs> Just, uh, I don't think they all made it. <laughs> well, people like to think the best. And, and ultimately, there's a sense in which we do not have an inside track on who is or is not. Right? Um, that's up to God. That's between him, God, and that individual. You know, um, but the Bible says there's only one way. There's one door to the sheepfold, Christ. There's only one door. John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Um, you don't have multiple ways. Don't let anybody tell you, well, you know, everybody that's sincere, they'll get there. Nope, nope, that doesn't work that way. Christ is the way. And, and that's why we're so hated, because we're, we're bigoted in thinking that we have the only way. We do. 
But it's not in our way. It's not what we dreamed up. It's what the Bible says. You take it or you reject it. Yeah. Well, we better get into John 13. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world of the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing all that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from the supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. And Peter said, You will never wash my feet. Jesus answered, If I do not wash your feet, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, He was bathed and he's only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you, for he knew that who would betray him. Therefore he said, you are not all clean. Okay, what's going on here? Well, this is the upper room, right? How did Jesus get there? Well, you know, you have the triumphal entry, right? And he has the disciples go ahead to find a place. And some say this might have been in the house of John Mark. We don't know that. Um, there was a place where there was a room prepared for the Passover feast. This was a solemn occasion to the Israelites. This is the last Passover that Christ will will participate in. All right. And um, they have this Passover feast. And, and by the way, just so you understand, um, you can do a little research on this. They actually had two times when you could celebrate the Passover. One of them was Thursday night. One of them was Friday all right, because there are some people from out of town, and so there's two times that you can observe the feast, and Christ observed it, of course, on Thursday night. This is Thursday evening, getting towards the evening, where they're going to have the Passover meal. All right, and by the way, when did the Jewish day start? Sundown. Sundown. So Thursday evening would have technically been Friday, the day of Passover. Okay, technically it would have been the Passover. So here's Christ who's in the upper room. He's got his 12 disciples with him. They're going to celebrate the Passover feast together. And um, what did Christ know here? As he sets up in, in the first couple of verses, first verse, what did Christ know? Time's coming, right? And, and understand, what did Christ say? I came not to do my own will, but the will of the Father. He had a divine appointment, right, with death. It was time for him to become the savior of the world. And he knew that. And by the way, just if when you put the other gospels together, on the way to Jerusalem, what, what, what was the discussion among the disciples of Christ? Yeah, who's going to get this and who's going to get that and who's going to be the big shot and who's going to be over this and over and on the way to Christ being nailed on a cross, which they were totally oblivious to, although he had told them on multiple occasions, on the way to him being nailed on a cross, the disciples were arguing about who was going to sit in the kingdom. And isn't that just like us? Right? We're so interested in our own power, prestige, place that sometimes we're oblivious to the greater plan of God. And I love what it says, whoever exalts himself will be humble. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Folks, we, we understand, we got to get this straight right now. We have to practice humility. All of us do. We got to learn to be humble and let God do the exalting and not us. We don't have to be in control. We don't have to be the big cheese. You know, we don't have to run. We don't have to be the poor person that everybody looks to in church for the answer. We don't, we don't have to have any of that. All that is is pride. 
We don't have to sound our own horn. <laughs> to toot our own horn or whatever. It's humility. And on the way up to Christ dying for the sins of the world, the 12 disciples are arguing who's going to be first in the kingdom. And John and James goes and gets their aunt to come and try to weasel their cousin and to let them have the right and the left hand. Their aunt. Well, Christ's aunt. Their mother, Christ's aunt. They're trying to weasel in and 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 it said the rest of the disciples were indignant. Why? Not because they would do this, but because they had they had it up on them, you know. They had an inside track, you know, a little nepotism going on there. All right. And one of the things, of course, he did in those days is when he went in to eat, they did not have tables like this. You didn't sit around a table. Rather, you reclined. You would have cushions that you would recline at. And you would basically, you know, sort of like, you know, think about watching TV where you're laying on the floor, you know, with your snacks in front of you or whatever. That That's sort of like what it was. Or, or the Japanese, you know, where you have the low table. That's what they had. So if you're down on the ground, what's going to be close to you for the most part? Somebody's. Feet, right? So what they had in those days is one of the social customs were when you went in to eat, there would be a servant with a bowl of water there that would wash the dirt off your feet and dry it so that you would go in and you wouldn't gross your neighbor out while you're eating dinner, you know. And so all the disciples come into the room and all the way, all the way, you got to understand, all the way there, and all the way up the stairs, and all the way into the room, what was in their mind? Who's going to be number one? Because what did they just go on? Well, they just had the hosannas, right? They had the accolades of the people. They're, you know, they're all ready to crown, crown Christ king right now. And they were all arguing about who's going to be number one to the extent that not one of them dared to do what? Wash somebody's feet. And then just like your average church person today. Yeah. We want, we want prestige. Position. We want to be respected, looked up to, people thinking we're something. And Christ is going to just really berate them on this. No, that's the way the Gentiles work. That's the way the government works. If you want to be great, you need to be servant. The way up in the kingdom is down. And, and that's really the way it is in, in all of God's economy. It's sort of the opposite of the world, right? How is it that Christ is exalted and given a name above every name? He humbled himself far greater than any of us would have ever dreamed of doing. He is eternal God, right? Face to face with the Father, and he gave it up. And came here, and not only did he come here, he died, and not only did he die, he died the most gruesome humiliating death possible. And not only that, he took upon himself the sin of the world. You couldn't humble yourself any more than that. He's the creator. He made it for Pete's sake. And yet he humbled himself. And that's what Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. You want to be great in the kingdom of God? You got to become the least. And the more you depend on yourself and your abilities and your power and your whatever you've got, the less God can use you. I like, you know, I love the story of Gideon, right? Gideon, I want you to defeat the Midianites. Good, all right. Now, if I'm Gideon, I'm going to get as many guys as I can, right? That's why you have too many. So he sends a bunch of them home. 
Was it down? 10,000. Too many. Thousands. Too many. Finally gets down to 300 guys. You got 300 guys that are going to go defeat this massive Midianite army. And Gideon's thinking, I'm dead. But God gives him a plan. He goes, and the Midianites kill themselves. Yeah. Now, when it's all said and done, who got the credit? God did. Yeah, I mean, Gideon comes back, you know, with his 300 guys, and, you know, the people, you know, they're sitting around saying, hey, how'd it go, man? Oh, we, you know, we went in there, and we, each of us killed 100 of them. No, it didn't work that way, right? Because they were to take a pot, a, a pitcher, and put it over a candle, and they didn't even... And when he said, you know, how they want, people look at him like, you know, this is not, <laughs> this is embarrassing, right? This is not the way you usually work. But what did God want to make clear? It's not you. Jericho, right? Big walls. Okay, how do we take this city? God said, oh, I want you to march around it. So every day you get up and you march around the city. And people are on the wall laughing and hollering and jeering. And the seventh day, you got to march around this thing seven times. That's going to take a little bit of time, right? What happened after the seventh time around? Shout and the walls came down. Now, can you imagine, you know, writing down, you know, Joshua's memoirs later in life. You know, how did you defeat Jericho? Can you see him on TV today? Uh, tell us, Joshua, how did you defeat Jericho? Well, you know, we marched around the city, shouting, and all the walls came down. I mean, that doesn't play well, you know, on Geraldo and all of that stuff. You know, you need something more spectacular than that. But God wants to shatter our human pride. And God here, Christ, is rebuking these disciples about their pride. They come into this room and not one of them. Our pizza's there. I bet our pizza's there. Hello? We're sending it, we'll send somebody out right now. Um, you want to be on, on the northeast corner, if you can see the light on West Ridge and 113. There's a guy in a black leather jacket coming out. Yeah, he says he's a nice looking guy. I don't know, but um, yeah, he'll be out there waving you down. All right. But what happens here is Christ is shattering their pride. And, and he, you know, I love the way he does that. He doesn't do it by saying, well, you bunch of no good for nothing. What's going on here? Yeah. He does it by example. And I can just see the entire collective ego deflate. When Christ picked up the bowl of water, the master right? He picked up the basin of water and he went around to each one of the twelve and he washed their feet. That was the job of a slave. That was the job of the lowliest slave in the house. You know, the, the, the concept of Christ doing this would have, it, it, was, a, it was socially, I mean, Abigail Van Buren would be just screaming, you know, how horrible this. She's the one with the manners, right? She, this is just unacceptable that he would be doing. But Christ is trying to make a point to these guys. You're arguing about who's going to be number one, that you fail to do what you should be doing. And greatness in the kingdom of God is not measured on who's on this side of me or that side of me or who gets to sit where. It's based on service. And those who wish to be great need to learn to be humble. Because if you can't be humble, you can't be used. God does not need our assistance in pulling off the plan. You realize that. He doesn't need our, our help. God needs us to give up and let him do it. And the more of us that gets into the mix, the more he has to clean up. God does not need our assistance. God wants him to be humble. And these people here were not humble at all. They were arguing about who's going to be sitting where. And he comes to Peter, and of course Peter is just 
I relate to Peter here because I would have been embarrassed out of my mind that he would be doing this. He's not supposed to be doing this. And here we're all fighting about who's going to sit where and not one of us dared to humble ourselves and pick up a towel and a basin. And here he's doing this. Peter was embarrassed and he felt ashamed. He didn't want Christ to, to wash his feet. And Jesus said, if, you don't, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. What's he trying to get across there? Why was Peter not wanting Christ to wash his feet? Pride. pride. There's no room for pride. There's no room for pride. He was ashamed and proud that how, how he should not be doing this. And of course, when Christ said, if I don't wash you, Peter said, well, do the hands and the head, you know, bring me all in. And Christ is saying, no, we don't need to do that. He said, if I wash your feet, you're clean, but not all of you are clean. And why did he say not all of you are clean? Because who's still there? Now, I want you to stop and think about this. Talk about letting out the rope, right? Christ washed Judas's feet. The one who's going to betray him. Even now, Christ is offering salvation. Although he knew Judas would not take it, nevertheless, you see his mercy in continuing to offer him an opportunity and a chance. To me, that's amazing. So, so when Judas is finally hanged, no pun intended, there's no doubt in anybody's mind that he had been given every opportunity. Christ offered, even, even to the point of, right to the end, Christ was pulling out his hand. And Judas refused. Thank you for listening to today's study in the Gospel of John. Part 2 of this class can be heard in the next podcast in this series. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.